Since we started this new year, I've mentioned that, at least for myself, but it's something I want to try and uh, persuade you all to do. The Lord has impressed upon me the need to get God's word out, to have a heart for winning souls, to have a burden for the lost. And uh, we've been gearing our messages towards that, trying to make sure that the things that we're doing are things that are lining up with God's word, that we're filling our heart with the truth of God's word, that we're desiring to live the spirit-filled life. And all of these things are needing to culminate into something. It's not just filling our heads with knowledge and having our hearts being encouraged by the word of God, but what are we doing with this information? What are we leading it towards? How are we using all the information, all the truth that God has imparted to us? Is it being a blessing? to those that God has placed in our lives? Are we having a desire to take the truth of God's word that we have in our hearts and take it to the people in the world around us? There is so much need everywhere we look for God's truth to go out, for people to come to the knowledge of the truth. And if we're not going to do it, then who is? And so as we've been gearing our, our messages towards this, today we're going to be looking at a passage here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll be looking at verses 9 through 21. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 21, in a sermon that I've titled, Winning Souls. Winning Souls. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and in a moment we'll read these verses. I heard a story. I heard a story of a boy who was walking through the woods, and he was moving not too fast, at least not until he heard a growl behind him. He turned around to see a huge bear coming right for him. Immediately, the boy began running as fast as he could through those woods. But as he ran, he knew he could never outrun the bear. Then he saw a tree coming up ahead with some lower hanging branches. And the closest branch was still about 15 feet up in the air. So as he approached the tree with every ounce of energy, with as much as adrenaline that he had built up with him, he psyched himself up enough to jump as high as he could up into the air. When he felt the breath of the air, the bear behind him, that's when he jumped and he prayed with every ounce of strength that he had that he could reach that branch. Well, the boy missed that branch on the way up, but he caught it on the way down. Now, that's what I would call motivation. And we started off this year with a strong emphasis on personal evangelism, on an emphasis on soul winning. Now, no matter where we look, no matter where we go, there are souls that are need, needing salvation. We often don't put too much emphasis on personal evangelism, even on soul winning, because the thought is that, well, someone else will come and take care of it. No matter where we are, though, there is always a need. The Lord often convicts me when I think that way, that, you know, someone else will, will come behind me and will take care of this individual that needs salvation. He'll reveal to me, though, that I'm, I'm no better when I do that. I'm no better than the priest and the Levite who walked right by the man that was beaten and left for dead in the story of the Good Samaritan. Now you may be thinking, well, the priest and the Levite, they had no intention of helping that man. They didn't have any good thoughts towards that man. They looked at him, saw him in his need, and just kept on going on their journey. Not even thinking that you know, the next person is going to be helping them out. Well, that's true. But is it really all that different from what we do when we don't take time to share the gospel and don't make an effort to reach lost souls for Christ? Are we any different than the priest and the Levite who didn't even think that the next person is going to take care of this man who's been beaten and left for dead, but had just ill will towards him and just kept going on? Are we any different when we pass up opportunities to be a witness? Sometimes we'll tell ourselves that it's a matter of convenience. We just don't have the time to do it right now. We're in a hurry. We need to get somewhere. We need to get what we need. Then we need to get on with our lives. Some of us just want to live in our little bubbles where we go to church, where we read our Bibles, where we have our own personal devotions, and then we live without ever sharing our faith because that's what we feel comfortable doing. Aside from the fact that we're told by Christ to be his witnesses to this lost world and to proclaim his truth to all who will hear it, there is a great blessing for those who are active in sharing their faith. In Psalm 126, in verses 5 and 6, the Bible states, They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. There's a great blessing, an immense blessing to share God's truth. 
every time I've had the privilege of leading a person to Christ, the Lord always fills my heart with joy. And with as much joy as God gives, Satan will try to plant that seed of doubt in your mind to rob you of that joy. You have these high and lofty aspirations for the, the person that you just led to Christ, how their life is going to be transformed, how things are going to just drastically change for them from this moment forward. And it doesn't always happen the way that you expect. They don't always come to church right away. You may never even see them again. And when this happens, Satan will try to convince you that the person wasn't truly saved. He'll try and plant that doubt in your mind that if he was really saved, well, he would have been in church. If he was really saved, well, you'd see him all the time. Then, and you find that he's reading his Bible, he's praying all the time, and that he's grown tremendously, and he's changed all these lifestyle habits from his past. I've had this happen when I'm driving away from an encounter, from leading someone to the Lord, and Satan pounces. He pounces. All of a sudden, I'm going through the entire conversation I've just had with this man. And now I'm all of a sudden, I'm, I'm analyzing every little word that he said, everything that I said, and I'm thinking, well, was it genuine? Did he really mean what he said? Should I have explained it better? Now you're, you're, you're constantly questioning every little thing about the entire situation to the point where there was that initial excitement, but by the time you get home, you're thinking, he's not even saved at all. What a disappointment. What a letdown. And this is what Satan will do. Every chance he gets to try and rob you of the joy that you should have for leading a sinner to Christ. You, you start wondering about everything. Did I explain everything as clearly as I should? Did I just push this man to give me a response that I was hoping to get? Did he really mean everything he said? Did he even understand all that I explained to him? Satan has used all of these questions and many more to try and make me think that all of my witnessing was completely ineffective. And then he'll feed off of what off of all that when the person doesn't show up in church. Well, it must not have been real because if it was real, then he would have been in church today. If it was real, we'd see benefit of that. We'd see the fruit of that. We'd see changes in the guy's life. And so the thoughts that we'll have in our mind is, see, that doubt was right. I told you he didn't really mean what he said. If he was truly saved, he would have been in church. If he was truly saved, he would be seen again. These are the thoughts that Satan seeks to plant in our minds. He does this all the time to discourage us from soul winning altogether. Why? Why go and do it? And you know what? It works. It's, he's so effective at that. Few Christians are motivated to go out soul winning. Though they're so unmotivated. And for whatever reason it may be, we buy into these lies of Satan because we've done it before and we've been so discouraged at the lack of results that we've seen and the doubts that Satan has planted in our minds that we're thinking, well, I'm never going to be effective in soul, win soul, uh, soul winning, so why even bother trying? All of the soul winning that we will do is going to be done here on earth. There is no soul winning when we get to heaven. So in the days before we're in heaven as Christians, Let's make it a priority to spread the gospel of truth, of grace, to all those who need it. So with your Bibles open, as we look at this passage here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to see several things that should be motivating us to be the soul winners that Christ has called us to be. Notice what it says in verse number 9 here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 9. It says, Wherefore we labor, that whether, we, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. Wherefore we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. What is it that motivates you? Each of you have a different answer to that question, but an answer nonetheless. We're all motivated by something. What you achieve in life will be primarily uh, impacted by those motivations. The Lord has shown me that one of the areas where we need to be more effective in is soul winning. Now, this goes for myself personally. This goes for us collectively as a church. We make it a point to come to church where we offer our praise to God, where we receive the word of God imparted to us. But what are we doing once we receive that truth? The more we hear God's word, the more we are equipped to use God's word. One of the reasons why we've seen such a spiritual decline, both in the world, which that shouldn't be a surprise to us, but also in the church, 
is because personal evangelism and soul winning has completely declined. People come to church. They get all their tools sharpened only to go back home and hang up their tools and to grab them again once Sunday morning rolls around again. And we keep going through this process where we go and grab our tools from the shed, we bring them to church, we sharpen them, we go back home and we hang them up, and then we grab them again when Sunday morning comes around, we bring them back to church, we sharpen them some more, and then we go back home and hang them up, and we never use them. We never use them. We're filling our heart, we're filling our mind with the knowledge of God's truth, and we should be taking that out into the world, but we go home and we hide it to ourselves and hoard it. How much would a farmer get accomplished if all he did was sharpen his tools and never put them to use. Believers are called to sow the gospel seed, but we lose the motivation to do any work the moment we walk out of this building. We wish to see revival. We pray for revival. We wish to see souls saved. We wish to see them added to this church, but we're not motivated to evangelize. How are they going to be added to this church? How are they going to be added to the kingdom without people like us taking the word of God's truth to them? We come to church on Sunday morning, we sharpen all of our tools, and then we go home and we hang them up. We come to church on Sunday evening, we sharpen our tools, and we go home and we hang them up. We come to church again on a Wednesday evening, we bring our tools with us, we sharpen them, and we go back home and we tell them up, and we hang them up. We're just not motivated enough, though, to be the ones to go out and to take God's truth to the world. We'll pray for souls to be saved. We'll see the need for a revival and pray that God will bring a revival, but then we're basically telling God, God, you're going to need to bring them in yourself. Because I'm not motivated enough to actually go and do what you've called me to do. And here in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 9, the Apostle Paul tells us what his motivation was to lead souls to Christ. He says again, Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. This morning we're going to look at the example of the Apostle Paul and we're going to look at six motivations for the soul winner. Six motivations that every believer should have if you're truly going to be a soul winner that Christ intends you on you being. Now first, how the soul winner is compelled. How the soul winner is compelled. Look at verse 9 again. Wherefore we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. Now in no way is Paul telling us that our work of soul winning is what is going to get us to heaven. Rather, he's encouraging every believer to work in such a way that is pleasing to God. He's talking to believers here. He's not saying your salvation is contingent upon whether you do this. But he's saying your salvation should demonstrate that you are a child of God based on what you're doing. Whether, wherefore we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. Our goal as believers ought to be that we please God. It's hard to make an argument that you're pleasing God if you're not seeking to bring souls to Him. It is good to be faithfully attending church. It's good to be faithfully giving to the Lord. It's good to be active in the ministry of the church. But you can do all these things and still not be pleasing the Lord. If you're not telling others about Jesus, then you're not pleasing the Lord. It doesn't matter if you please everyone else around you. If you're not pleasing the Lord, is any of it worth it? The best way to please God is not by throwing a big fat check in the offering plate as it goes by. The best way to please God is, is not to read through the entire Bible in a month. The best way to please God is to lead sinners to salvation. Paul wanted to please the Lord with every fiber of his being and that's why he devoted his life to just that. To preach the gospel of salvation to everyone that he encountered. It made no difference if he was in a jail cell standing before governors in the synagogue or in someone's home. Paul was so thrilled at the fact that God had saved him and his salvation uh, that he had received from God is something that was so he was so enthusiastic about that he wanted to tell everyone about how they could be saved as well. The joy just billowed over and led him wanting to share the message to everyone. Listen to what he said, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. He said, so as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. 
The life-changing message of the gospel was so real to him, the Apostle Paul, that he wanted to make sure that everyone everywhere was hearing about it. As Paul sat in a prison cell and he was awaiting his own life sentence, his own death sentence, rather, for preaching the gospel. He was thrown in prison for preaching the gospel. Imagine that. It was illegal. How many of us would be thrown in prison for being a Christian? Is there enough evidence in our daily life that we are a Christian? If Christianity was illegal, would any of us be in prison today? He was thrown in prison because he was preaching the gospel. He was going to be sentenced to death because he'd been preaching the gospel. And you know what? As he's sitting in that prison cell, probably hearing the blades that are being sharpened to cut off his head, he's still preaching the gospel. He's still preaching the gospel. You'd think if anyone would have had any sort of common sense that what they, had, they would have realized that they're in prison because of this, that they'd stop at least now to have any sort of chance of mercy that maybe the executioners are not going to actually follow through with this. But he keeps on preaching the gospel to the guards, to all the jailers, to everyone else that's in prison there with him. He's making sure that the gospel is getting out everywhere that he is. And as he sat there in the prison cell, he says in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 and 13 and verses 20 and 21, he says, But I would, you should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all their places. You know what he's saying here? He's saying, praise the Lord that I'm in a prison cell. You know why? He's saying, I would have never been able to reach these people had it not for me being arrested. I am getting into places, into palaces, into dungeons that I would have never have been able to get into had it not for me being arrested for preaching the gospel in the first place. I'm reaching souls that I would have never seen. God, he says, is using all of this providentially to get his word out. He's putting me, he says, in front of people that need the truth of the gospel. And now they're forced to be here because many times they're chained right next to him. They can't get away even if they wanted to. So he says, oh, you know, while I, while I got your time for a few minutes, as we're chained together, let me tell you about something. And no matter how much they were furious about this, they couldn't go anywhere. They, they didn't you know, put duct tape over his mouth. They just had to listen to him spread the gospel, share the truth of God's word to them. They couldn't do a thing about it. And he says, you know, I would, you should understand, brethren, that the things which happened to me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. He says, God's word is going forth. Don't worry about me, guys. God's word is going forth. And praise the Lord that he's used me and my situation to be something where God's word is going forth in all of these places where I never dreamed of going. He goes on, he says, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body whether it be by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul was not motivated by worldly pursuits such as material wealth. He was motivated to lead souls to Christ. And this compelled him to preach the gospel in any and in all circumstances. He counted the cost and he found that pleasing God was far more valuable than to please any single man, even if it ended with him losing his life for preaching this gospel. He knew it was worth it because he knew at the end of the day, God was going to be the one who was pleased. When you're compelled to please God, you'll not be ashamed in anything you do for him. Even if others mock you, ridicule you, look down upon you, reject you, God's favor will be upon you. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 10 tells us, it says, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which you have showed toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. Now, even though that verse speaks of ministering to the saints, the same is true for your work towards those who don't know Christ yet. In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 58, the Bible states, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. God is always aware of every little thing that you're doing for him. And even when you don't see the results that you were wishing to see, as you go forth sowing the seeds of the gospel, your labor for Christ is never in vain. 
Isaiah 55 and verses 10 and 11 tell us, For as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. It can be very discouraging when you do everything that you're supposed to do as a Christian. You explain God's word so clearly. You present the message of salvation so effectively, and yet the response is not what you were expecting. God hasn't promised that you're always going to see the same results every time. He hasn't even required that you lead a certain number of people to salvation in order for him to be pleased with you. But he does expect you to be faithful and diligent in sharing his truth. When his word goes forth, it accomplishes everything he intended on it accomplishing. We just have to be the instruments ready to be used by God and for him. In Romans 10, 13 through 15, the Bible says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It goes on. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. See, when you break it all down, it's pretty incredible. It's pretty incredible to see how much God is doing in all of this. God knows all the work that you will ever do for him for your entire life. He never forgets even the smallest bit of it. Everything you do in his name is never done in vain, even if you don't see the results of it. He is the one responsible for cultivating that seed that you have planted. He is the one that is going to bring forth life from that. He's basically doing all of the work. All he's asking of us is to be the instruments by which his word goes forth from us. So many Christians are stumped at the fear of rejection. When God is telling us to leave all of the things up to him, all the results up to him, don't be concerned with the results. Let God handle that. He is the one ultimately bringing the increase. He is the one who brings spiritual life to those who are spiritually dead. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse number 6, he says, I have planted, Apollos has watered, but who gave the increase? God. God, he says, but God gave the increase. God has called some to plant seeds. He's called others to water those seeds. And all of that is the gospel seed that is going forth. And all of it, he is the one who brings the increase out of any of it. Some people spend their entire lives planting the gospel seed without seeing the greatest results. God is not going to punish them by banishing them to some back room of heaven because the number of souls they led to Christ was fewer than the person next to them. God is pleased with your diligence to live for him by sharing the gospel as often as you can. He will be the one to bring the increase, even if you're not seeing the increase like you'd want to see. He is the one that is going to be pleased if you're diligent, if you're genuine, if you're sincere in planting that gospel seed in the first place. So be compelled to please the Lord. Be compelled to please the Lord. Second, how the soul winner is compensated. How the soul winner is compensated. Look at verses 9 and 10 here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. How the soul winner is compensated. Every single believer will one day stand before the judgment seat of Christ and we will have to give an account for everything we have done here on earth. This has nothing to do with your salvation, but everything to do with whether or not we shall receive any sort of compensation for our work that we've done for the Lord here on earth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verses 24 and 26, it gives us a good picture of what this compensation will look like. It says, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. So run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, 
So fight I not as one that beateth the air. Now, this journey of life, the journey of Christianity, is compared to by the Apostle Paul there in 1 Corinthians 9 as a race. And we should all run to win the race, right? If, if any of you are entering into a race, none of you are thinking, well, I'd really like to come in last place in this race. None of us have ever entered a race and thought we, wouldn't, we didn't want to win. Even if you knew there's no way you're going to win, you've always had in the back of your mind, it'd be really nice to win this race. And this is the same idea. You enter this race, you're in this race of life, and you're in it for the purpose of winning. You're in, in it for the purpose of being compensated. Years ago, I played baseball. Uh, one year, we won the championship. And each of us players were awarded this huge trophy. At the end of the year, everyone got a trophy. But if you came in first place, if you won the championship, your trophy was a lot bigger. It was a lot nicer. I played several years of baseball, and I had tro trophies for each year that I played. But that one year we won the championship, that trophy was head and shoulders bigger, taller, more grand, more awesome looking than any of the other trophies that I had. And I would display them. I had them, on, I had a desk in my, in my bedroom, and I had them all on the top of that desk, all the trophies, and the one from the championship that we won. That stood out. It was taller. It was shinier. It was brighter. It just everything about it was so much better than any of the other trophies that I had won in all the years of playing baseball. Do you know where that trophy is today? I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. I have no idea where that trophy is. All of the trophies, all of the awards are long gone. Over the years... I've had the privilege of leading a number of people to salvation. Even though I may not know where each of them are, I know that each of them are still saved. When you win souls to Christ, God is not going to give you a corruptible crown that is going to fade, that is going to be lost, that is going to be given away, collecting dust somewhere, and eventually become waste in some dump. He has given us an incorruptible crown, he says. It'll never fade. It'll never be corrupted. It'll never tarnish. It'll remain forever. In 1 Corinthians 3, verses 11 through 15, it describes what it will be like when it, every single believer appears before the judgment seat of Christ and receive our compensation. It says, For other foundation can no man lay than that that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The foundation is Jesus Christ. But he says, Now if any man build upon this foundation... Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire." This passage tells us that there are certain qualifications that must be met before we're compensated as believers. It's not just any work that we do that is going to be rewarded. All the work we do as believers will be tested to see if it was genuinely done to please the Lord. And if it was truly done for the Lord, it would be not out of selfish motivation. Everything we do as Christians is built upon that foundation that we have in Jesus Christ. That's what it clearly states there. For other foundation can no man lay that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Your salvation is not done. It's not added to. It's not completed through your works. Everything is complete through Jesus Christ. He is done. He's done everything that needs to be done. What we do is building upon that. It's not completing his salvation. It's not complementing it to make it better. It is showing forth what that foundation has done for us. If any man build upon this foundation, he says, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, all of that is what is going to be tested. We have in Christ a foundation which can never be lost because a believer can never lose his salvation. So all the work we do doesn't add to our salvation. It just sets us up for rewards for pleasing God here on earth. And all the work that we do, we see is divided into two categories, that which will endure testing and that which will be burned by fire. The gold, the silver, and the precious stones are those works that we do for Christ that are genuine, that are sincere, that are all pleasing to God and ensure a reward. The wood, the hay, the stubble are the works which will prove to be worthless because they were not pleasing to God. They were done with selfish ambitions and selfish motivation. In the second grade, 
I broke my ankle and couldn't play baseball. It was devastating to me. Devastating. On game days, I would still get dressed up. As much as I could, I had a cast on my left leg. Sorry, memory's gone a little bit. I had a cast on my left leg. Broke my ankle, but a cast going all the way up to my knee. And tried to get up in uniform as best I could. Had my, had my jersey on and tried to get my baseball pants on as best I could over, those, uh, over that cast. And I was marching up to the bench with my crutches. I, I knew I couldn't play, but wanted to be in there. I wanted to, as much as I, I loved it, I wanted to still be there. And as much as I knew it was going to pain me to be sitting on the bench and to be relegated to only sitting on the bench and never getting into the game, I still wanted to be there. And I would sit on the bench and I'd cheer on my teammates and I can tell you that it was agonizing, agonizing, sitting on that bench, not being able to play. I wanted to get into the game with every fiber of my being. I wanted to get in there. I wanted to contribute, but I couldn't. Some of us have been warming up the bench for years without ever making an effort to get busy doing what is truly pleasing to God. We may be claiming injury, we may be claiming some deficiency of some sorts as to the reason why we haven't made an effort to go out and to share the gospel. Don't expect to be rewarded by God because you've attended church for 100 years or because you've read the Bible from cover to cover 100 times. You should be in church. You should be reading your Bible. But all that time devoted to sharpening the tools that God has equipped you with should translate into putting the training that you have into practice. There are no rewards for Sunday morning bench warmers. Every believer is going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. What you will have to show forth for your time and his service for the Lord here on earth. What is there that your life has demonstrated? What is it that your salvation has brought forth? Have you worked? Have you strived to make a difference in the world around you by sharing the gospel to those that are in desperate need? If you're seeking to win souls for Christ, you can be sure that the work that you're doing is that gold, is that silver, is the precious stones. But if you're not, your work will resemble that wood, the hay, and the stubble, which when it is tried by fire, it's quickly going to be consumed. There's no U-Haul that you're going to have behind the hearse. You've heard that expression? Rather than spending our time investing in things that aren't going to last, let's spend our time investing in those things that are eternal. When we stand before Christ, may we be able to present him with all the many souls that we led to him because we were diligent in sharing the gospel. Instead of being there empty-handed saying, well, yeah, I was saved when I was five years old, and now I'm 95, and now I've, you've brought me to the, the, the gates of heaven, and now I'm standing before you as a judge, and I've got nothing to show forth as far as my sharing of the gospel is concerned. How the soul winner is compromised. The third, I want you to notice how the soul winner is convicted. How the soul winner is convicted. Look at verse number 11 here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. How the soul winner is convicted. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are manifest in your consciences. The confidence, rather, the conviction that we have is mentioned right there in those first few words. The terror of the Lord. It's interesting the mentality that some Christians have. It's easy for us to be extremely self-absorbed at times, where we have little concern for the unsaved. It's almost as if we know there will be plenty of time for people to come to know Christ as their Savior. Therefore, there's no urgency for me to go and share the gospel to them right away. I like the way Paul puts it here in verse number 11 because it paints a very real picture of how we should be looking at things. Again, he says, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. He, he is persuaded, he says. He's convicted to evangelize because he knows the terror of the Lord is real and it will be experienced by all those that are unsaved. I honestly don't think that we hear enough about the reality of hell and therefore we lack the urgency to try and spread the gospel and spare people from an eternity of torment. The world presents this air-conditioned picture of hell that is not terrifying in the least. And thus, there's no urgency to avoid it. The Bible is clear that hell is real and that it is a place of eternal torment. Now, this reality should convict us to share the gospel with those who are headed there so that they might escape such a terrible fate. The trouble we have is that we don't understand what it means to have the terror of the Lord. Romans 3.18 says, There is no fear of God before their eyes. 
We like to focus on the love of God while ignoring his judgment, while ignoring his holiness and ignoring his wrath, as if that's not the God that we talk about anymore in the New Testament. When you present part of the truth as the only truth, then that part of the truth is an untruth. And we're perfect at that. We've become masters at that. As only presenting part of the truth as if this is the only God that exists and he is only a God of love. And he tolerates and accepts and compromises everything that people hold to as long as they love him. That is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. God is not going to tolerate open sin. God is not going to tolerate open rebellion. He's not going to tolerate unbelief. And he will cast all those who are unbelieving into the lake of fire. Because that is what they've ultimately deserved and that's what they've ultimately chosen when they rejected him. You're not helping people by only telling them part of God's message. They need the whole truth. Let the terror of the Lord convict you to share the gospel so that we're leading sinners away from damnation. Notice fourth, how the soul winner should have compassion. How the soul winner should have compassion. Look at verses 13 through 15. 2 Corinthians 5, 13 through 15. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God. Or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which should live, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. How the soul winner should have compassion. The more you're active in soul winning, the more you're going to be viewed, get this, as a crazy person. You're going to be viewed as a crazy person, right? Oh, here comes this Christian again. All he talks about is heaven. All he talks about is Jesus Christ. Would you just stop it and talk about something normal? You're viewed upon as a lunatic, as a crazy person. That's a good thing. I, I want a church full of crazy lunatics. I want a church full of just people that get under everyone else's skin. But I want it for the right reasons. I want it because we're just sharing the gospel everywhere that we go. That everywhere we go, everyone knows there's a Christian in their midst. Because in every conversation that we have, it just naturally comes out that we have a Savior who loves us and is desired to save us by His grace. And that He can offer salvation to anyone who believes on Him. It should be natural. It should organically come up in all of our conversations. We should be so crazy, so much of lunatics to the outside world that this is what they think of us. This is how they see us. It's a good thing. We should stand out from the world and we do that when we're living for Christ. Paul was accused here. He says in verse 13, for whether we be beside ourselves, he was accused of being crazy, of being beside himself. And he assures the believers that it is the love of Christ that constrains and motivates him to live this way. He said, it's not me. It's not me that's crazy. It's the love that God has given to me that has made me this way. And it's not craziness. But it has compelled me to live with such enthusiasm that I want to get the gospel to everyone. And I want you all to have the same excitement that I have over something that has changed my life eternally. We should be driven by the compassion and love that Christ has first shown to us. If we truly love Jesus, we'll have a desire to tell others about him. It's good to have the reminder of these verses from time to time. Again, for whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. He said, guess what? He didn't just die for me, he died for you too. And he wants you to be saved as well. He says, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. He says, guys, I'm not living for myself. I'm living for Christ. And living for Christ means that I have a compassion and a love that he has for me unto you as well. I want you to all enjoy this as well. Everyone needs salvation. And if we're saved, we should be living for him who died for us and gave us everlasting life. Do we see the needs of those around us? Are we having compassion on those for whom Christ died? Are we motivated by the love that God has first shown to us to share the gospel with those who are unsaved in our lives? As much as we should be motivated to be soul winning because God's love for us, we should also be motivated because of our love for God. We should love people because God loves people. The soul winner should have compassion. And notice fifth, how the soul winner has confidence. How the soul winner has confidence. Look at verses 16 and 17. 
He says, Wherefore, henceforth, know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. The confidence, the confidence we can have when we lead a person to the Lord is that they become, as verse 17 says, a new creature. It makes no difference who they were before. It doesn't matter if they were rich, poor, educated, uneducated, weak, or strong. All that is after the flesh. We should see everyone as people who need the Lord. All around us are people who need the Lord, regardless of where they rank in the social ladder. God providentially puts people in our lives, and if we're living with the confidence that God can transform any individual who exercises faith in Jesus Christ, then you'll be ready to lead people to Christ. We get so caught up in seeing people after the flesh, though, as he says there in verse 16. And we dismiss them, or we forego witnessing to them based on some impression that we have when we see them or that we have when we talk to them. Everyone is important to Christ. Jesus died for the sins of every single person, even those who appear to have been discarded by society. Don't ever dismiss someone based on their appearance or based on their social rank. Don't ever think that anyone is beyond salvation. Well, look at that guy. He's a mess. God can't save him. He's too far gone. Let God determine that. Hebrews 7.25 states, Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. There may be people who have already sealed their fate. There may be people who are, are walking dead. They have a pulse, but their soul has been set, determined to be in hell because of their unbelief. And God just gives them over. You have, you're alive, you still have a pulse, but you're done. But that is not up to us to determine. We just need to keep witnessing and going out with confidence, understanding that God's grace can reach anyone. And notice sixth, and this is the last one. The soul winner's commission. The soul winner's commission. Look at verses 18 to 21. The soul winner's commission. And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God has called every believer to this ministry of soul winning, to this ministry he calls of reconciliation. Thanks to the finished work of Jesus Christ, we have been reconciled to God. God didn't save us, though, uh, God didn't save us for us to sit back and rest in the blessings that we have through faith in him. He has called us to active duty. And since we have been reconciled, he has commissioned us to the ministry of reconciliation, to get others reconciled. The Bible calls us here ambassadors for Christ. Whether you realize it or not, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you are an ambassador for him. Everywhere you go, you carry the name of Jesus Christ with you. Every time I left my house when I was a, when I was a kid, a teenager, my dad would say a couple things to me. One thing he would say is, you bear my name wherever you go. And I found out was my dad is a pastor, everyone knew him people I didn't even know. I'd say who I am. Oh yeah, we know your dad. Are you kidding me? I really can't goof off now because word's going to get back to him in no time. Everywhere I go, I bear his name. And that was in the back of my mind because if I was going to goof off, now I'm definitely not. Everywhere you go as a Christian, you bear the name of Christ. Wear it well. Carry it well. Represent him to the fullest. Be a light in the darkness. You may be thinking that you're not qualified to be an ambassador for Christ. You may not know what to say or how to explain everything the right way. Just start by telling people what Christ has done for you personally. In all honesty, many times our own personal testimony can become the best witnessing tool because people will see that we're genuine when it is something that we've personally experienced and we have these personal stories to be able to share with them. But also make it a point to keep training so that you can become the most effective witnessing tool to reach everyone. What is it that motivates you? What is it that motivates you? If I started offering $100 for every single person you lead to Christ, would you be motivated to go out soul winning? You're laughing. 
I, wouldn't, I can't afford that. Or maybe I could. That's even sadder. But I pray that we can get motivated to win souls. And I pray that our motivation stems from a desire to please God. Every one of you are here. You're here because someone valued soul winning. That person may not be around anymore, may not even be in this room, but someone valued personal evangelism enough to share the gospel with you. You're here. You're here today because someone prayed for you. Someone counted the cost. Someone looked around and saw the needs of those around them and wasn't ashamed, wasn't shy, but realized that this is an investment in eternity and shared the gospel. Maybe you're here today and a soul winner has planted the seed and you're still yet to believe it. What are you waiting for? Are you waiting for a better opportunity? Are you waiting for a more convenient time? Are you convinced that you're going to have all the time in the world to make this decision to fully trust in Christ at a later time? God hasn't appointed, God hasn't given us any specific amount of time. He hasn't said, well, you're going to live until you're 75 years old. And on your 71st birthday, you're going to breathe your last breath and then I'm going to take you and it's going to be over with. We have no idea how long our lives are going to be. We have, no long, what, we have no idea what breath is going to be our last breath. Not to be too morbid, but you can get in your car this afternoon and you could get in a car accident and that could be it. If you're waiting for the opportune time, today's day of salvation. Today's day of salvation. Because tomorrow is not guaranteed. We wake up with new aches and pains every single day. I pulled a muscle on Monday. My back, my side is still killing me. I went to the doctor. I was convinced that I had broken a rib and he said, no, really bad pulled muscle. You know what I did? I was shoveling snow. Shoveling snow, seriously? How ridiculous is that? Our bodies are withering away. They're withering away. I'm not even that old. They're withering away. If you think you're going to last, if you think you're going to have more ample opportunity to trust in Christ later on, when your life is going to be more put together, you're waiting for something that's never going to happen. And you're playing this terrible game with your eternity. Banking on something to happen later on that may never come. May I encourage you? May I let you know that the terror of the Lord is real? That he will condemn every single person who has not come to faith in him and his son Jesus Christ. He will condemn them for eternal damnation in hell. He will not say, well, you know what? You did attend church sporadically. You did read your Bible every once in a while. You know, I'm going to show you something that I've never shown anyone else. I'm going to make an exception to you. No, he doesn't do that. But he's made it so easy for you to be saved. He hasn't required a, a whole body of work of a lifetime to come to salvation based on all that you can do. He's made it so simple where all you have to do is to believe in His Son, Jesus Christ, and that is it. The work is done. The work is complete. It is finished. It is finalized. It is secure thanks to Jesus Christ and all that He's done. All you have to do, all you have to do is to believe on Him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is it. A four-year-old can do it. 94-year-old can do it. All you have to do is believe that he is everything. That you cannot do it on your own, that you are a sinner in need of salvation, that Jesus Christ is that salvation. And when you believe on him as your Savior, he is taking care of it all. Past, present, future. He is everything. That is it. Simple as that. So whether you're here as a believer who has been the fruit of someone else's soul winning, or whether you're here as a Christian who needs to be more invested into soul winning, or whether you're here as an unbeliever who needs to respond to the soul winner who has been pleading in your life, who has been instructing you, trying to urge you to come to salvation, and you've been obstinate in your fight, and you have been rebellious in this, and you've been fighting it tooth and nail, would you understand that today is the day of salvation, that today is the time for you to come to be saved? And let this be the most glorious day of your life because you not only have your, your past dealt with, but you now have your future guaranteed in heaven because you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, the only one that can bring you salvation. May this be 
the best and the most glorious day in your life. There are a few days that are exciting. A day that you're married, a day that you have kids, a day that you're saved. Nothing trumps that. Because as much as I love my wife and as much as I love my kids, they can't do anything regarding my salvation. Jesus Christ has done so much more than what anyone else can ever do. And that is the most important thing that you can do is to put your faith and trust in him. Come to him today. Come to him today. Wherefore we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. Would you bow with me in prayer here this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord, that we have everything we need. Lord, all these things are just reminders of what you've already told us. But I pray, Lord, that we would understand the importance of spreading your truth, sharing your gospel. Lord, if we're saved today, your gospel has been shared to us, whether by parent, Lord, a relative, a friend, or even a perfect stranger. I'm thankful, Lord, for the soul winners that you sent our way, who impressed upon us a truth, Lord, that we needed so desperately to hear. And Lord, we believed. You did all the work. You did all of it. And Lord, I pray for all those that are here today that don't know you personally. Lord, they've been under the teaching before. They've heard the message clearly. But Lord, they have continued to remain in unbelief. Though they know you, that you are real, Lord, they've not submitted themselves to receive Jesus Christ and all that he is. I pray that today would be the most glorious day in their lives. Lord, that they would turn to you, that they would receive Jesus Christ by faith and all that he is and all that he has promised to be. And may their lives be drastically different from this point forth. Lord, compel us to desire to live lives that are pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.